It's another week and another edition, a fun edition of the Pat Richter Show right here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. How you doing, everybody? Alex Rope with you here on your Saturday morning alongside the man and the legend, the former Wisconsin Athletic Director, the man that knows so freaking much, the great Pat Richter with me. Pat, how are you this week? No, good evening, Alex. You're doing great. Thank you. Uh, kind of worn out from all the basketball, but uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun and now we're going to have to scones around a little bit for some exciting things to talk about that rival that uh, last game. Yeah, it's going to be hard to. And, and I do want to start with the Final Four in the, in the tournament as Kansas wins their first national title since 2008 on Monday night over North Carolina. Just a crazy tournament. Let's start with that game. We'll work backwards back into the Final Four because I do want to talk Duke-UNC as well. But uh, Kansas-UNC, North Carolina up by 15 at the half. Kansas completes the largest comeback in national title game history and wins the game by three points on Monday night. Just a great win for Bill Self's group as uh, he wins his second national title at Kansas. Uh, pretty pretty awesome game, pretty awesome result. Uh, the tournament absolutely de- delivered on, on the grandest stage of them all, Pat. Yeah, it really was. I happened to be out in the East uh, time zone at the game, so I watched half of it. It looked like it was going to be all over anyway and watched the first half and then the next morning uh, wake up and bingo with it. Kansas won the thing. And, and the thing I was really interested in watching when we were playing it back was the, the halftime show. Uh, Charles Barkley is always very good. And, of course, he had the, the, the Jet uh, was there and uh, – they talked about the game and what was going to happen. And I mean, Barkley was just absolutely flustered and just to say, they just were terrible. It was a big, terrible game plan. He had picked Kansas, and he and they kind of kid him about that. And he said, well, you know, there's there's always two halves. There's always two halves. And so it, it was kind of prescient that, that he did that. What he said kind of turned out that way. But it really was, uh, you know, you couldn't attribute it to the saying, well, are they worn out? Because obviously Duke and North Carolina had a tougher game than the Villanova and Kansas, although they uh, they have a tendency to get out in front and, and really run hard and and it was just like night and day. But uh, the first half, you know, Hubert Davis had these guys jacked up. I mean, he was really pumped up. I mean, he had an interview during the first half, and I thought he was going to jump onto a suit and get on the floor and play himself. <laughs> I mean, he was wild. But that was, it was kind of where they are. But I think what showed up finally was the the lack of depth. I mean, you think about the guys that came in and the substitutions, and after Backout hurt his ankle and things like that, there wasn't much there, and uh, they get a little bit of foul trouble, and it was tough. They had the big guy that they had, uh, Kansas had, uh, was just way too dominant, and he just took over control and. And you just you kind of wonder about how the game's officiated. We talk about that a lot during the season, and there's differences and different things. And, and sometimes you say, you know, why was that not called? You know, when somebody's driving by somebody, and he literally just puts his hand on the hip, doesn't push right, he just puts a hand on there. You're going to call it, but yet underneath the basket, when you're trying to get a layup or something like that, you get hammered and nothing happens. And so it was it was fairly well officiated during the game and uh i think that they just had just too much strength for them and, and once they got going in the second half 
Kansas, I mean, they were running at 100 miles an hour, just up and down, and the guys just really were wearing them out. And, uh, but, you know, I give Carolina a lot of credit for coming in eighth seed. They obviously peaked at the right time. They were, uh, they were just as, you know, not an eight seed normal. But the eight seeds usually are ones that have to play in kind of the eight, nine game. And, and it's just a tough road. And they did a great job. And Hubert Davis has done a great job in carrying on for Roy Williams. And, uh, so these look going to be tough. Be a good team to come, uh, take a look at next year and years to come because he's going to be doing a great job as a coach so there's going to be a lot of people in the transfer portal wanting to come into Carolina yeah no doubt about it uh as uh that was just one of the remarkable runs and that's the fun of March Madness right Pat you never really know what to expect as an eight seed it's all about peaking at the right time and uh that that was the fascinating part with North Carolina we'll get to their game with Duke in a second but I do want to talk about you know to that point of, of how crazy the tournament is, this probably wasn't one of Bill Self's better groups at Kansas. I know they were one seed, and they were still one of the better teams in college basketball this year, but probably not one of his better groups, but it's the one that leads him to a national title his first in 14 years. So it's just uh, it's always so fun to watch how things come together in those final couple of games, uh, you know, from mid-March all the way now to the first weekend in April. Uh, It's just really fascinating to see how you never really know what's going to happen, right? I mean, it's so hard, and that's why nobody's ever picked a perfect bracket because you just never know what the heck is going to happen. And Kansas, absolute proof of that again this year. Yeah, and you know the one thing about this is that you you never know what's going to happen, and it comes down to that. One thing that really shows up is, is conditioning is very important in, in a mental aspect of it. You know, we wouldn't dare think that a team could have a game on a Friday night and or Saturday and then on a Monday and just come on one day of resting and come out and turn around for especially a game of this magnitude. And that just shows that these are these athletes are just so resilient, so well conditioned and uh, the emotion and everything else it really gets caught up in that. And I think sometimes when you to get out in front we've talked about it whether it's football or whether it's basketball, you get out in front of a, a team and it's, it comes real easy, and all of a sudden you start to just back off a little bit, and then they come up and turn it on, and you just can't turn the gas back on yourself, and it really makes it very difficult. But I think that it's a tough job for a coach to keep them all tuned up. It was interesting about Bill Self made the comment after the game about what he, what he said at halftime. Everybody thought, oh, my gosh, he must have really been raised the roof and everything else. And he said, would you rather be down 15 with uh, another half to go or down nine with two minutes to go? And uh, basically, he kind of said, with nine with two minutes to go. And so it was an interesting perspective in that regards because he knew they'd been in that position before and were able to pull it off and uh, years ago. And so that was the, kind of what everybody's sentiment was. But I think that the, you know, the conditioning, the depth, they certainly had the ability to uh, – to hit the three points, they were really deadly. They didn't didn't shoot the free throws very well in that game, but that didn't uh, seem to bother them too much. Second chance points were, were big, especially in the first half with Carolina. And a lot of those, you've never seen so many rebounds come out so far and get swatted out to midcourt so you can take another chance at it. But uh, it's pretty hard to pretty hard to uh, get against and think against a team like that, especially with the way that they played against Villanova. They played a different kind of game and they got out and 
front of them and kind of thrust them and throttle them a little bit and kept their foot on the gas and uh, had a chance to rest up a little bit. The other Carolina had a tough game, mental, physical, and yet they certainly came out and just took advantage of every opportunity they had. You kind of epitomized the Kansas the Kansas players towards the end of the first half was that last rebound that came off and they were kind of standing around just looking at what was going to happen and all the, the Carolina player just came in and grabbed it and had a layup and pushed the lead to 15 points for halftime. That was kind of emblematic. And so I think there's certainly a little bit of soul searching in terms of what they played, how they played, and uh, the fact that they had to get back on track and otherwise they're going to be embarrassed. And that probably is the biggest motivation of anything is that you played so poorly, be down worse than any team in history to come back and win. And uh, and that's what's the motivator. And I think they really took advantage of that. Yeah, no doubt about it. And to go back to your point on North Carolina, momentum is so real in sports. And I think, you know, getting that big win on Saturday over Duke, ending the career of Coach Mike Krzyzewski, and rolling into that Kansas game knowing, hey, you know, nobody can stop us right now. We're an eight seed against all odds. We just knocked off Duke, who everybody thought was going to win it all. And, uh, you know, they come out really hot in that first half but like a championship team does Kansas absolutely responded to getting punched in the mouth and ultimately win that game but let's go back to that Saturday game Pat between Duke and North Carolina I would put that right up there with some of the greatest games we've seen in college basketball given the stage the teams playing the rivalry the stakes with Mike Krzyzewski's uh, last year obviously I mean the stories were everywhere Everybody in that arena was standing, it seemed like, the entire game. I mean, you could feel the intensity from New Orleans up here in Madison. I mean, it was just bananas what that game presented on Saturday. Uh, how did First off, I want to know what, what, what you were doing Saturday for that North Carolina Duke game because it was, uh, it was really terrific. Did you, did you cook anything special or were you just sitting in the recliner and enjoying it? Uh, the latter sitting in the recliner in the ladder and enjoying it. It was kind of like one of those things you don't have a dog in a fight because we've had some, kind of some uh, tough games against Carolina in the past. And then, of course, we had the the uh, Final Four game, the championship game against Duke in the most recent past. And right. that was – so I was kind of leaning towards Carolina and to win that one anyway just because we had some bittersweet memories of the, of the Duke game. And uh, – the ironic thing about this is that I know I saw a stat, and it was kind of surprising. But the fact was, as notorious as a game this was going to be, Duke and Carolina, da hoopla, whatever, the Kentucky Wisconsin game is still the highest-rated basketball game ever in terms of uh, the television audience, and that was like 21 something million. And the Duke Carolina game was like 16 or 18. It was all the numbers weren't in, but there's no way that they could uh, reach the numbers that were that were put in with regards to Duke Wisconsin. And that game was uh, the highest one ever. So that uh, goes to show that uh, Badger fans really follow the uh, the, the the Badgers. And uh, I think the Carolina and Duke people couldn't uh, couldn't pull it off. But but I think that the uh, there's so much emotion, you know, and there's that's. That energy gets used up an awful lot when you start thinking about all the what ifs and and especially the pressure that they had on for not winning the game at Cameron in Mike Krzyzewski's last game right. at uh, the home stadium. So there was a lot of pressure on it. Everybody said, no, there isn't any pressure and things like that. 
that's a bunch of baloney. They, it's not pressure as such. It's just wanting to do something so badly that you're not maybe doing something that's normal sometimes. And I think that uh, that's what they get caught up in. And I, but that was a great game. I mean, they have a game like that, where I think it was 12 or 13 ch- changes of the lead that were done uh, there as well. And uh, back and forth, back and forth. And it really wasn't uh, put to bed until uh, the final final moments. And it was one we really couldn't stop and not watch the whole thing because it was going to be that close. And I think that uh, the fact that we, we kind of get caught up, I think, in the, in the emotion that they have because uh, you can understand it would be like Wisconsin and Marquette playing at the same kind of a event and uh, sorting out the fans on each side of the fence. But being in the state of Wisconsin, the same type of thing as it was in Carolina. So you can just imagine how important it is to those people. But I think that that game was uh, one of the finest games I think I ever saw. It's just the the quality of the play, you know, the, the dynamics with the coaching and the changes and things like this. I, I think it was uh, somewhat tough on uh, Mike Krzyzewski, you know, having it right in the grass, so to speak, and not to not to win it, and especially being in Duke in Carolina means more to them than anybody watching the game for sure. I mean, if we think if we think we can put ourselves in a position of what it's like to play a rivalry like that and, and come away short, uh, I think we shortchange ourselves because there's no way that you can imagine that after 40-some years of coaching, coming down to a semifinal and national championship that you just are within a whisker of winning that game and not pulling it off, that's got to be really tough. And, uh, and so... You know, I think that Carolina with Hubert Davis just had an extra energy, and they really pulled it off. Davis, I think, surprised a lot of people with his energy, and he and he uh, was just a delight to watch on the sidelines, engaged all the time. And I think that uh, poor Mike it looks like his he needs a hip replacement. He walks with a limp, and and he had to sit down a little bit on the sidelines. And that floor, of course, is goofy. It's like Minnesota, you know, elevated floor. And that's yeah. that's kind of an awkward thing to play. And uh, I even didn't have anybody going for a diving for a ball on the sidelines, but that's what Bo and Dick Bennett and the guys used to do is, is teach the guys how to roll off the edge of the court if they had to dive for a ball, what they had to do. It was kind of crazy, but that's <laughs> that's a... It's not a it's not a usual type of situation. You know, some of the things like that just throw you off. This is the Pat Richter Show here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. Alex Strofe alongside former Wisconsin Athletic Director Pat Richter. Now, Pat, uh, as college basketball season comes to an end, we see more and more and more and more and more student-athletes entering the transfer portal. And I know you and I fall in a pretty similar stance on the transfer portal it's getting ugly, man. I mean, there there are so many student athletes entering the portal. Whether whether it's playing time, whether it's a you know they, they think they're they can go to a, a better basketball school or football school or whatever it is, it's just fascinating to see how all these players are just are, are jumping ship and and trying to go elsewhere. I, I really don't know what to make of it. I can just make of it that I really don't love it. Uh, where are you at as we see more and more players? I mean, I saw St. Peter's who made this immaculate run. I know their head coach left to take a job at his alma mater, Seton Hall. 
but uh, a bunch of the star players from St. Peter's are entering the portal now, and and it's just it's just ongoing. The ball keeps rolling. What are, where do you stand on the transfer portal here as uh, we enter another end of a season? Well, I don't mind the basic concept, but I think what's happened is the fact that it's coming at a time when when your crossroads are with uh, NIL, name, image, likeness, and so what it does do is promote the opportunities to kind of you know uh, go fishing with regards to can I make more money someplace else with a better team. And uh, and they have one good year, you know, instead of having to wait for four years and see what happens, but they have a good year, and next year it could have been a bust year. You never know. But I think the fact that they it comes with nil is gives a kind of a little bit of an ugly smear, smear to it in terms of the opportunities to say you come to our place and we'll give you get you this and that and whatever, and it's going to be basically kind of free agency all over. I mean, it's in some respects – the uh, the NFL and uh, and uh, somebody was talking about the other day that they've got the salary cap and that doesn't even have a the NCAA doesn't even have a salary cap with respect to NIL and so in some regards it's unlimited and so it's going to be tough on the coaches it's uh, I think last year there were 1,700 people that entered the players that entered the transfer portal this year there's over a thousand or 1,100 right now. I think, and uh, and so it's a constant recruiting process. You not only can imagine that uh, you've got to go out and recruit and maybe spend three or four years uh, before someone graduates and you identify them as a sophomore or a freshman, follow them closely, and then they get, you bring them to school, and you, you once that usually happens, you try to say, okay, well, they're here now, and they're, they're going to be with us. You can't guarantee yourself that. I mean, loyalty is only so far uh, in, in, the, in this kind of the rearview mirror in respect to the opportunity to make some money, and uh, maybe you're going to be a player, maybe not. It's probably more advantageous to players that are that are on the borderline, not so much the lottery picks like the Johnny Davises and whatever. But I think with Kansas, they, Remy Martin would have played a very instrumental part in that game. I think he came from Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and he was a very important part. So, I mean, it's just catching lightning in a bottle. I mean, it's it's kind of the pro model with respect to going someplace and putting a team. So, I mean, one player goes and he may uh, contact somebody else, hey, I'm going to go here, why don't you come on along and we'll put it together. It's kind of like that LeBron James, you know, team development type of situation. And so... I just don't like that aspect of it. I, I think there's there was just not enough thinking that went into it ahead of time to come up with a good plan to say, okay, what's the objective? Objective to give opportunities, and I think now you've doubled up with respect to the fact saying, well, the argument was that coaches can do this. That coaches make the money, they can go anywhere they want and still have you know don't have to sit out a year or whatever. Well, now they can go everywhere they want, but they also you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, can uh, get uh, former players that uh, maybe have caused them to be successful to come along with them to the next school. And you mentioned off the air about the St. Pete's coach. He went to Alamada Seton Hall, and there's some guys that are on St. Pete's that, you know, probably are going to follow him. And uh, and that's and that's really not the objective, what we're trying to accomplish. It's, they're going for the wrong reasons. And then you, like I say, overlay nil on top of that. It really can be a possible potential for some ugly situations come up, no question about it. 
Yeah, just a quick correction. Remy Martin, Arizona State, actually. Not Arizona, Arizona State. State. Okay. But yeah. uh, nonetheless, you're absolutely correct. That's a guy who, who went through the experience and now reaps the benefits of winning a national championship. So it's it's certainly a fascinating topic that we've spent you know a, a lot of time on. I've asked you this before, but I'll, but I'll ask again, Pat, because you have such a, a unique perspective and background that I don't. You know, if you were to suggest changes to the transfer portal, do you have any in mind, or is it kind of a slippery slope? Well, I think that there, there's some limitations that have to be put on there. In other words, uh, how many times can you transfer over a five-year, five-year four-play tournament or not tournament, but uh, career? Uh, maybe you say, okay, if you transfer, you have to stay a period of time. Or if you have to stay uh, for two years before you transfer, to really understand that you just don't have a bad situation for a first year. So there's some limitations along those. Anytime you start talking about limitations, and everybody gets, oh, no, no, we can't do that. Coaches don't have limitations. They don't have to stay somewhere. But they also have buyouts and paper and things like this. And so when you put invest some money in that, maybe you want to make pay it on a business-like basis, okay, let's do that. If you uh, leave and the contract is for four or five years, you leave, then somebody's going to have to pay that school initially the, the cost of the, the transfer, for example, or something like that, some kind of a tease in, in, the, in the process. And uh, either say that you have to, when you when you start school, you need to have two years before you can transfer, or when you get when you transfer, you have to you get to do this maybe twice in, in your career, where you once uh, and maybe make the the transfer. After once you transfer, you got to make it two years for someone to stay. You know, anytime you start talking about that, it's just it, it blows in the wind because everybody wants unlimited possibilities, and that that's really where it kind of rubs reeds. Nobody is really talking about the fact that uh, this is a big total success about the transfer portal. Nobody can argue the freedom of moving and things like this has has happened. But the fact is, is that you have 1,700 moving parts. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be hazard a guess in terms of how many incoming freshmen there are each year, for example. I mean, this has got to be just a huge number with the 1,700 in terms of maybe 160 Division One schools or so. And a lot of them, I mean, you, you say, well, I'm going to go on a transfer portal. What if you're not picked up? What if you, you just sit out there and, and nothing happens? Then you burn the bridge at one end and you don't have an opportunity at the other. And so I, I'd be willing to bet there's going to be a lot of horror stories out there that, of people that have tried to do this and tried to improve their lot, so to speak, and it didn't turn out very well. And maybe that's what it's going to take before it kind of calms down is the fact that this isn't a panacea for everybody. It's just not going to happen that way, but it's uh, something that's going to be thoughtful. And uh, perhaps uh, you know, with the coaches you've got, you know, you're not leaving because of them. It, it, that can be another opportunity to negatively recruit. If somebody gets a few transfers and goes to the portal, then somebody says, well, look, they don't like it, Wisconsin or somewhere else, so they just they're going to transfer. And, and it gets a negative rec- recruiting aspect to it which may be unfounded as well. There must be a lot of opportunities. I mean, Ben Carlson, for example, yeah. I mean, looking at that, and those people looking at it saying, I was surprised, saying, because now is the opportunity. It seems like he really started to shine towards the end, and now with very few you know, people coming back, you'd think that this would be opportunity. And uh, so, I mean, if he wants to closer to home or something like that, some of those things are understandable, but for the most part, uh, they're – 
based on opportunities to to get into the pros, get be seen, whether it's the NBA or whether it's the European leagues, things like that. It's just it's more financial driven now. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. You bring up Ben Carlson, which I think is an interesting example, right? It's a guy who, as you mentioned, kind of began to really find his footing. It seemed at the end of the regular season. And obviously into tournament time a bit, but that was a kind of a short run both in the Big Ten and NCAA tournaments. He's probably not going – if he would have stayed, he wouldn't have been a starter likely, right, with Wall and Crowell returning. But he would have been one of those first guys off the bench. So maybe it's a move looking for an opportunity to start. And I get that, right? As an athlete, you want to compete and you want your best opportunity. But – I don't want to put words in your mouth, Pat, but it seems to me that, that you tend to agree with me that the, the transfer portal is offering more negatives than it is positives, especially long-term. Is that a fair thing to, uh, you know, a way to assess it? I think that's true. I, th- I think you could you know, quite easily say that there, you can't be 1,700 uh, unhappy people out there that, that uh, really want to take a transfer portal because they're, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place and they're caught in there and it's a bad situation and they're, near, they're not close to home or something's upset. All those situations don't have those kinds of implications to them. And, they, and more or less, many of them are just you know, kind of not necessarily a whim, but just uh, their eyes are bigger than their minds in terms of thinking this is the best place for me. And there's no guarantee that the next place is going to be the best place because you come in knowing full well that the people that are receiving you understand, well, he transferred one time, why, what prevents him from doing it again? And so they look at you a little bit differently as well. I mean, there's very few players that will step in and, and uh, make a smooth transition that's one that, that is, is, is positive from a team standpoint, the camaraderie, the locker room business, uh, the, the mix. You've got somebody that's a senior now has maybe a tendency to maybe an upper-class person to be more of at least a self-assertive and more thinking of their leadership role that maybe is contrary to what the the, the tenor of the, the team, the spirit is at that point in time or in, in terms of interaction and things like that. So there's a lot of questions that I think that probably we're probably five years away more to find out what the implications are. And, but it's pretty hard to get that genie back in the bottle. Well said. That's the great Pat Richter here on the Pat Richter Show. I'm Alex Strofe hanging out with you here on your Saturday morning. Pat, uh, no transfer portal for Johnny Davis, uh, but he is going to be leaving the University of Wisconsin, but he's taking that next step up to the NBA, as as we likely expected him to do after just a terrific sophomore season with the Badgers, uh, a National Player of the Year finalist, a Big Ten Player of the Year. The list of accomplishments could take up the remainder of our show, but uh, Johnny Davis announcing last week, late last week, uh, after we recorded last week, that he'll be making the jump to the NBA. Like I said, it was expected, but you got to be happy for a guy, obviously, who uh, had such a great experience for two years at Wisconsin, now going to go make his money at the next level. Yeah, I mean, that one really was kind of the exception. I mean, he he uh, he had a great experience this some past summer with the USA Basketball. Uh, he uh, he plays with a passion for the game. His father understands the game. And with his brother, he's, uh, he's earned the right to do that. And I think that, uh, realistically speaking, you know, I look at it and say, how does he, how does he look in terms of fit into the, the pro game? You know, he was such a dominant figure as an individual with Wisconsin. It was hard to say what, 
what he had to do. He, he does a lot of good things on defense. He can uh, shoot the ball from the free throw line do very well. He can slash the basket, but that game becomes a little bit different. And, and, it, and if it is allowed to be as physical as, he, as we've seen it in the pros, it's going to be a tough game. And that's why he has to work on his three-point shooting. I remember when we played uh, with the Davison where they had uh, Seth, Steph Curry in there, and, and you could see the shooting and things like this that we're going to bring him to the next level. And he didn't think of anything else. With Johnny, you say, well, he can, he can slash, he can handle the ball pretty well, he can uh, he can play good defense, but uh, you know that's a different game there entirely. So I'm sure there are things that we don't see ourselves here in terms of analyzing his game that the pros see in terms of you and to get to that next level to be successful, you have to do this, this, and this. I think the advantage he's got is the obviously he's very young. He's younger, than coming out early, and not as old as a, say a senior would be. That he has the opportunity to work on those things, and they, somebody's bound to take a, a real shot at him in terms of being having a time to develop as well. But he's a good, good kid. He's a quality person. He understands the game. He understands the, what goes with being a pro because of his father, and uh, and I think he's certainly. Uh, He's somebody you don't want to overlook because they could be the diamond in the rough in terms of giving you something more than what we've really seen thus far. But I think developing a three-point shot is probably the first on the list of anybody and uh, because he's got the speed, quickness, the basketball sense, and uh, all those things that are, you can't be taught necessarily. You, kind of, you just have them. He has, a, he has a great ability to play the game of basketball. Yeah, and it's... Pat, I, I haven't been able to dig it up, but I don't know. Has there ever been a sophomore to leave Wisconsin's program uh, for the NBA? I know Devin Harris and Sam Decker left as juniors after their junior seasons, but I don't know that anyone's ever left this early to make that next jump from Wisconsin. I don't believe so. Not, not in my knowledge, anyway. I think that, you know you think of the Finley, the Kaminsky's, uh, Harris, uh, guys like that, Tucker that uh, have gone on. They've all kind of been within a year of graduating and uh it's it's rare that you see a sophomore and of course it's rare that that you see somebody be have that much of success and uh and i think that that's that's kind of a tribute to his development and i think that's probably what's going to drive the draft status would be saying if he could move from last year to this year and do the things he did and showed us what he could do what can he do for the next year we develop? So I think that's maybe some things that are work in progress, but the fact is that he, he's, he's done the things necessary to move it to the next level, and now he's got another step to take and, and show that he can do it at that level. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, he's projected to be a, a mid to late lottery pick, which is top 14 in the NBA draft. So that's pretty solid for being, what, 20 years old, if he's even that yet. So uh, Johnny yeah. Davis, tr- truly terrific. And, and you mentioned the leap he made, right, doing that USA basketball program last year and, and just taking that next jump from or that great jump from year one to year two. Man, I am excited to see what his first year in the NBA looks like. If he is, uh, if he, if there's still room to grow and improve, I mean, this guy could be really, really special, uh, even at the next level. Even if he is a bit undersized, is what some of you know the knocks are on his on his draft status. 
he's a baller, and there's no doubt about it. And uh, it's it's going to be fun to see maybe what the next chapter is for him development-wise because it, it's so rare, as, as you just mentioned, the, the jump we saw from him, right, from year one to year two. Yeah. It's just the, the possibilities are endless what, he, what he'll be able to no, do next year. In the lottery year. situation, do the, do the Bucks have a ball in that category or not? Unfortunately, that. unfortunately they are too good to have a lottery pick, Pat, uh, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, you know. pick, yeah. Well, it's a double-edged sword. You get in a team that needs some help, and uh, you may have to push you in a little bit faster, but uh, there's opportunity there, and who knows? Uh, the trades, you never know what someone needs or somebody they have to, they, they have to, to make the pick to, to get it started in any way, and, uh, but there's plenty of opportunities. But I think that he's smart enough to know what he has to work on, and that's the important part is that some guys wouldn't have the motivation, but I think we all know that he... He's not, he's not that kind of a kid. He's the one that can really drive himself and push. And I think probably in the, in the basis of uh, getting a better player himself, he's probably going to be working out a lot with his brother, which probably should improve Jordan's uh, right. stock at the Badgers. So that uh, helps us as well in the future. We still do have a Jay Davis on the roster, right, and Jordan Davis. So maybe he can exactly. make a big jump from year two to year three. That's a great point. And maybe we can make a switch and then just leave Johnny here. They look so much alike. It's pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty easy to make a change. Yeah, maybe even if Johnny does go to the next level, if he's got, you know, maybe during the All-Star break next year, he could just come back and wear the number two jersey and, Yep. I don't know that anybody would notice, right? <laughs> exactly. Hey, Kansas is breaking rules. Wisconsin might as well, too. Who knows? But uh, nonetheless, Johnny Davis headed to the NBA as we uh, as we continue to roll on here on the Pat Richter Show, 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin on demand. Alex Strope with former Wisconsin Athletic Director Pat Richter. And, Pat, last thing I want to get to with you is baseball season officially underway as it began Wednesday, uh, and we roll on here into the weekend uh, I know you're a big baseball fan. It's still early on in the season. I, I guess we'll start before we get to your uh, your thoughts on maybe the Brewers and some other things. Uh, as a baseball fan, are you a guy that tries to watch all 162? Do you just flip it on when, when you have the time? Do you not get invested until maybe late summer? What, what, how does your baseball fandom roll on? No, I think if uh, obviously white fall follow the Brewers closely, and any time that they were on television, I'd watch them, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's a fight for the television set, you have to go in the other room, but uh, <laughs> but I, I enjoy just the, the watching that game, and certainly you would uh, hope that they can continue to improve the, the watchability, so to speak, speeding up the game, things like this. They've got a new, now, a way of submitting signals, I guess, from the catcher to the pitcher when they have runners on base that they apparently really like the the way it's worked out so far, but I, I, I will watch it. I, I think I still think that the World Series, you know, the last three out of or four out of seven series in the, in the Major League Baseball is one of the finest events. Uh, I, it, you can't. It's exciting. People. Some people say, "Oh God, it's too slow. It puts you to sleep and whatever." Well, I, there's just something about it. I guess maybe growing up as a kid. Watching the Brooklyn Dodgers against the Yankees and the Giants, New York Giants, and people like that, and then transferring it to the Braves, and Milwaukee Braves, and uh, and I think in that regard, it it just was came like the type of the year, pigeonholed in there in October in the World Series, and the, the names of the players were maybe more household names than they are today, even. And that was just something special, and that's why I've kind of continued to uh, enjoy watching the, 
the game and especially when we get into World Series time. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, it's it's always so fun to, to flip it on, and I'm sure the next couple of days I'll be watching a plenty. I'll probably tune out a little bit and then get right back into it. Midsummer is typically how how I uh, I'm a baseball fan, but I do love watching the Brewers. I know you do too. As uh, we get into the season, some of the best arms in the game returning to Milwaukee. Uh, they've they've rounded out you know a really solid lineup. It seems they're going to have a really good chance to win the NL Central again and make a run. Uh, what what are your expectations here? Is uh, obviously they don't have the bankroll as teams like the LA Dodgers do, but uh, it seems like they're always there to compete, and they should be again this year. Well, that's one thing I always kind of wondered about. It, it seems like the Dodgers and the Yankees just keep buying players, and, and they don't seem to have a problem with the, any kind of salary problems and caps and things like this. But I think it's going to be different this year, which is, I re, I'm disappointed at. That's one of the things I'm not happy about is Daniel Vogelbach's not going to be back. I mean, he was a lot of fun and uh, enjoyable. He made some really high moments with uh, the Brewers, and, uh, and he was a great locker room guy. I saw some comments from the, the Pittsburgh Pirates kind of seeing that the effect is not only did he he play pretty well and things like this, but he's just a great guy to have around and uh, totally. enjoyable. And so that's going to miss him. And in the, I think the acquisition of McCutcheon I think is a good one because I think that uh, he can win some games for you, but also mainly is that he's not going to beat you. He's been set by his bat. I mean, how many times have we seen that with him, with the Pirates and subsequent teams? Is being a tough out, and he loves the ballpark in Milwaukee. So hopefully he'll he'll blossom and do some great things there as well. And and I suppose everything is is making sure everybody's healthy. That's the thing that you worry about. Is that they were pretty fairly lucky last year, but a lot of changes. And I think that the eye for talent by the Brewers people have been very good. And so uh, expect good things out of them, and hopefully get off to a good start. That's always fun when you get a little bit of a good start because you. Re- we now realize how important it is at the end of the season when you've got off to a good start and are able to put away every victory is worth something and just the same whether it's in April or whether it's in September and that's what you got to make sure you remember is to just keep it on because it it's not timely but get a good cushion and that has always been a very good benefit to the Brewers because somewhere along the line you're going to get into a kind of a malaise of not playing well and losing yeah. games and things like this. And if you have a cushion, it's, you know, it's what you really need in the, end of the season. True that. And, and you talk about the health, Pat. I think uh, one of the more memorable moments I've had uh, you know, doing this show with you is when we were, when we were live, uh, I think this was back in October or September, Devin Williams punching the wall, breaking his hand after the celebration. No more punching walls this year. I hope I hope the Brewers can stay away from that. I mean, that's just baseball always brings some of the craziest injuries, and that one's right up there. So let's hope we don't have a repeat of that this year, right? Well, I've always uh, thought maybe they were. It's not, I guess, uh, false hope, but in terms of injuries, it's saying they they got a what a pulled what. <laughs> oh my God! Sore this, but you remember when Dizzy Dean had a bad toe and he pushed it a little bit, and that kind of threw off his motion. And most of people say that that was what ended his career. But there's a little small thing that's brought into be a big injury. But that's the thing. I think that sometimes the the strenuousness is there's so much practice time, but unless you're sprinting the base and things like this, you're not going to get it replicated until you get into a game. And that's why you see so many. Hamstrings. I mean, Vogelbach's a good example in terms of 
I mean, when he came around the bag and all of a sudden, boop, it's like somebody had shot his hamstring and he pulled up and he was off for a period of time. So I guess even though we might think that they're inconsequential injuries, they're they're all important in terms of the the way that the game is being played and the speed and the quickness and the changing uh, direction and things like this. I guess one thing we would like to see maybe is maybe we should – eliminate the shift that seems to have yeah. taken a little bit of a sting out of the game i don't really care for that i mean how many guys you talk about base batting average and things like this the ball batting averages would be much higher if that wasn't in play and in that respect some of the current players are not uh, having the same shot at the batting title as some people might have imagined yeah, that's an interesting point. I just got to say, Pat, I definitely did not have a Dizzy Dean reference on my bingo card this week. So nicely done there. That's that's a heck of a pull right there, man. Um, yeah, the shift's interesting. They're talking about eliminating it for 2023. I, I, I'm with you. I hope they do. I think it I think it changes baseball quite a bit. Uh, but the universal DH has been implemented for this year uh, in the NL. I'm a fan of it. Where do you stand? Yeah, well, I'm a fan of that too. I think that. Uh... We, unless you're going to bunt the ball or something like this, I mean, it's highly unusual. You can probably tell the really good pitchers that are hitting pitchers, or you can count them on one hand. And we had a couple with the Brewers, but I think it's, it's just it's no sense because there's chance of injuries and things like this, and that's probably one less thing that they have to worry about is swinging the bat because a lot of things can happen, and some of them are not good when you're doing that. And so I'm all in favor of that. And again, Gives guys like Albert Pujols another chance to play. I mean, he can extend his opening day starting streak again because he's going to be in the lineup as a DH hitter. And so I, I'm all in favor of it. I am right there with you. And you mentioned Albert Pujols back in St. Louis for his final season. So uh, he's back in the division. One final run uh, will be fun to see how it comes to an end. Pat, always a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation this week. We'll do it again next week, all right? Okay, Alex. Take it easy. That's the great Pat Richter. This has been the Pat Richter Show right here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand, ESPN Radio. Coming up next.